This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, December 16th, 2022, and I'm Natalia Castro here with Jason Breifel from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today we are doing a quick overview of our three favorite shows of the year. On Fed Talk, we really try to bring in diverse perspectives to talk about, you know, ongoing issues impacting the federal community. And, and we take that perspective into every show that we create. And so for today's program, Jason and I are going to talk for a little bit, and then we're going to give you just a sneak peek on three of our favorite programs for the year. Uh, Jason, anything about, you know, how we decide on these programs? Well, Natalia, there's so much great and so much not so great going on in the federal community, but we really want to shine a spotlight on uh, the really inspiring, incredible, and uplifting things that are happening in the federal community and those topics that apply across the board uh, to this big community. And so we hope that folks find uh, our programming interesting and and that they enjoy that we're mixing it up. We're we're, we're really trying to, to bring out some of those hidden gems that might be out there. I couldn't agree more. And the first program that we're going to highlight today that you guys will hear a segment of is our Pride in Government show. I was really honored to host uh, the Honorable Sean Skelly, who serves as one of the Assistant Secretaries of Defense for Readiness. She is an incredible inspiration in the federal community. I got to meet her a long time ago when she was on the National Commission for Military and National and Public Service a forward thinker bringing new ideas into government. And on our Pride show, we were really highlighting how diverse perspectives make our government stronger in every agency. And so I'm excited for you guys to hear her discussion on the value of Pride in government. Jason, what was your favorite show that you got to highlight this year? So Natalia, it was really special for me to be able to host all three Senate-confirmed board members of the Merit Systems Protection Board, the MSPB. Uh, the lack of a quorum at the board is something we had talked a lot about here on the program for five years, something that I worked on as a lobbyist for our clients. And so having those three confirmed leaders on board, on Fed Talk with us, talking about how they're digging out from the backlog and getting the agency back to business uh, was really gratifying to be able to share with our Fed Talk audience. Seeing that MSPB come together really was one of the highlights of this year, and I'm so glad that we got to host them here on this program. It was a really phenomenal show. The last show that you guys will get to hear from um, is our show on Hispanic Heritage Month, something really special and important to me. We had on the inaugural director of the Museum of the American Latino, Jorge Zamillo, and he talked a lot about 
what the museum is doing today to elevate Hispanic Heritage Month, to elevate Hispanic voices in and outside of the federal government. And on this program, you guys are going to hear about how the museum opening is still a few years away, but Hispanic heritage is an ongoing conversation. And they're having exhibits right now that you can learn about uh, the value of Hispanic heritage and the American Latino history. This has been an incredible year of Fed Talk shows covering the highs and lows of what's going on in the federal community. We're excited to have you guys listen to these segments. And don't forget that you can listen to the full program on Federal News Network and on our Fed Manager and Fed Agent News sites. You can also catch new episodes every other Friday on your favorite podcasting platform and on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Thanks for joining us today. Good vision coverage shouldn't be blurry. It took just one look at Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision to see the difference. All members get fully covered in-network vision care exams, plus access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers, and plans that start as low as $12 a month. That's why I chose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. Let me start by introducing the Honorable Sean Skelly who currently serves as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness at the Department of Defense. ASD Skelly was confirmed by the U.S. Senate on July 21, 2022. She advises the Secretary of Defense on the strategic and operational readiness of the armed forces. She develops and oversees programs to ensure their readiness. ASD Skelly supervises the comprehensive enterprise-wide readiness system that measures the capability of the armed forces to carry out the national defense strategy. ASD Skelly also maintains policy and oversight of military service and joint training and education. ASD Skelly is also the co-founder and former vice president of Out in National Security, formerly served on the Atlantic Council's LGBTI Advisory Council, and was a member of the Service Year Alliance Leadership Council. I had the pleasure of meeting ASD Skelly while she served as, the com- as a commissioner on the National Commission of Military National and Public Service. I've been following her work ever since, and I must say it is impressive work to follow. ASD Skelly, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Natalia. It's a real pleasure to be with everyone today. Can we just start by hearing a little bit about what Pride Month means to you as a government professional? And then if you can tell us about your experience um, in government. Thanks. You know, um, it's something I've been thinking about um, anew since I um, became a um, confirmed, you know, presidentially appointed Senate confirmed um, senior leader at the Department of Defense, where um, my personal identity has become more intertwined with my professional identity than it did before. Um, Because, uh, you know, originally, um, my personal identity, as I came to understand it, had to be hidden as, you know, as, a, as part of my service, my uniform service at the end of my career. Um, then when I, um, it, it became um, public as a, as a private sector employee, um, but then when I returned to government service as an appointed uh, civilian, uh, the first time it, it really wasn't, um, was certainly relevant to me, um, 
but it um, it wasn't really a public thing. Not that anyone not that anyone hit it, but I was just you know a president presidentially appointed Schedule C employee, a GS fifteen, and my job was to keep my head down, my nose to the grindstone, and support my principal, you know, an undersecretary of defense. Um, so nobody paid too much attention to me except for what I delivered and produced and so forth. But then when you get presidentially nominated and you go before the Senate for confirmation, who you are is part of the process. And, um, and a, a good bit of uh, notoriety publicity comes with um, that process. So it's been a bit more explicit, a lot more explicit as to my identity. Um, the significance um, of my being um, now, and I believe still, uh, the, only the second transgender person to go before the US Senate for confirmation um, and be confirmed along with um, Dr. Levin at Health and Human Services. Um, and so uh, my place in government um, as an Assistant Secretary of Defense brings with it significant responsibilities. Um, I believe my place um, in history as it gets called out as other people have, have told me, and I think in a very earnest moving way, what it means to them that um, a president is uh, literally walking his talk with regard to making um, his administration reflect America. And I think um, what's noticeable to me is that, um, that the government represents the people that it serves, not just the administration layer, but the entirety of the executive branch. Um, there are professionals like me across government. Um, and then when it comes to Pride Month is understanding that uh, even though I'm presidentially appointed um, and all those things, um, to realize that I'm not alone. Um, and for, for many LGBTQI plus Americans, no matter where you are, uh, to including to including government, you can often, as part of your journey at one point or another, and you can those times can be revisited upon you as well. Um, it can feel pretty lonely um, as you as you come to understand yourself, as those who love you um, come uh, come to understand you. Then you know almost everybody has to work, you know, to support themselves um, as as your as your true self, uh, as your identity can as you can share it. Um, we know that uh, I think, and my fellow um, guests here probably un, un, know the number better than I do, but somewhere around half to 60% of Americans aren't out at work. You know, so there's this presumption that if you are LGBTQ and it's Pride Month, you know, you're setting off uh, those little glitter poppers and you're hanging rainbows everywhere in your workspace. That's not necessarily so. Um, so um, those of us that can and are out and are in a place that's safe and protective as the federal government is supposed to be, um, it's, um, it's almost in, in one sense, kind of an obligation of those of us who are senior and out to let it be known that we are not alone and that those around us can know that it can be possible, that they're not alone, that they're represented and um, our contributions are noted. Um, my day is pretty busy. Um, due to my seniority and the responsibilities. Um, so that means I'm often shuttling from one thing to another, focusing on what, what that calendar event is of the moment. Um, so the opportunity to um, remember who it is I represent, but who it is I'm also a part of, and um, to go to a couple of events this month so far, official events, 
Um, the hugs have been quite welcome because I, I need them as much as anybody else does, frankly. And it does do me a world of good to know that I myself am not alone, um, but that I'm also, I'm a representative of a lot of professionals out there. And I'm not sure we even know what that number is, which is a task that uh, I think a lot of people in government have and want to see pursued, is to understand how many people do serve in government that are part of the LGBTQI community to better facilitate government's enablement of their service. Thank you so much um, for providing that perspective, hearing that you are only one of two individuals or, or the second rather who have been confirmed by the Senate as a transgender individual, um, it really is, you are a beacon in a lot of ways and a leader in your community, even if you perhaps didn't intend to be, you know, you, you're just trying to serve your nation. Um, one of the things that you have done to really, you know, walk the walk in terms of making sure people know that they are not alone is found out in national security. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and what your mission was there? Thank you. Um, so I was one of three co-founders, my um, colleagues, Luke Schleusner and Rusty Pickens. We all served in the Obama administration. Uh, Luke and Rusty were both at the White House. Luke and I met at Department of Defense. Rusty then moved on to um, the State Department. And uh, we realized while well, we were at that time part of the largest uh, cadre of LGBTQ people in a presidential administration, um, the larger LGBTQ community didn't necessarily have a great appreciation of what national security really was and that it was not just foreign policy and people with international relations degrees and former, um, as I often say, knuckle draggers who served in the military like I did. Um, it's that the Department of Defense is about 3.5 million people when it's the active duty military, the career professionals, the contractors, and all of that comes together. There's every, virtually every discipline known to professional civilized society in this department from teachers to scientists. We have some archeologists out there. We have people that do childcare. You know, we have engineers and doctors as well as pilots and all of the military specialties and their lawyers, um, personnel specialists, everything is found that it's the foundational wherewithal of national security just in the Department of Defense, let alone in foreign affairs and international development and homeland security and justice and those things that are broadly considered national security. Um, and LGBTQ people are found in every segment of society, no matter which way you cut it. So that LGBTQ people are in and can serve in national security was the thing that we thought wasn't sufficiently explicitly stated and understood in that way. In some respects, it was still that, well, we know y'all are there, but we don't know what y'all do. But meanwhile, we're proud and, you know, glitter. <laughs> and I use that as a shorthand, but it's to kind of demystify it in, in, in some respect and also show the young people who are out there that there is a place for them. You will find yourself in this community and in national security as much as any other place. If you're serving all of the countries explicitly as national security does, as does every other part of the federal government, it needs to be clear that we're represented while we're serving everybody else. We're not just the people standing the watch on the wall and all of those kinds of things. We do represent America and you should feel that you can find your place there. So it was in, um, help to facilitate the place of people in there, but also to help ensure, help to provide a little bit, you use the word first beacon, 
that young folks who have, who have career aspirations know that their aspirations can find purchase. They, they can be welcomed in there in that way. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, Sean Skelly, discussing Pride Month and inclusivity in government. Assistant Secretary Skelly, one of the things that, you know, is very unfortunate that we often hear um, is that the focus on LGBTQ inclusivity doesn't advance national security goals or the focus on it could perhaps even undermine national security goals. How do you respond to that accusation? I consider it an accusation, frankly, because I don't know that anybody, well, I'm not aware that people say that as much as I hear it about LGBTQ issues, but that says it about African-Americans, Blacks, Hispanics, uh, women in the force. Um, We're all Americans. We can all contribute to national security as well as the military. Um, I often believe that it's um, a misunderstanding in some respect of what it takes for the military to do its job. It's often uh, simplified by, the um, the description is that there's a t- the spear and the tip of the spear and the tooth to tail, whereas what it takes to the old um, para- the older paradigms of the combat troops, the infantry on the ground in so many places, and what it takes and all the specialties that go into putting people into direct ground combat, which is far from being the only way in which nations happen to wage war either with each other or with um, terrorism groups and violent extremist groups and the like, or in the, the gray zone of warfare, it's often, it takes intelligence professionals, aviators, logisticians, people who know all of the forms of communications from radios to cyber to all of that. Um, it takes medical professionals. It, it, it takes all these disciplines and only, barely a, over a third of uh, all of them are direct ground infantry combat type things. Um, but combat can be found everywhere. There's no real sanctuary if you're in a theater of war. So the notion that anybody who is not, you know, an elite special forces person that you role play in in a video game is some sort of distraction. I don't know anybody who we would consider a, a shooter, a door kicker, an infantry, armor, artillery, who doesn't need all of those disciplines to do their job and that they would want to go there without somebody who's providing them the intelligence, the communications to do their job, the logistics that they need, that's the people who are going to be there if they get wounded are going to come back and care for them, all of those things, that the water they're being provided is clean. We have people at those specialties. And it takes that whole set of professions and disciplines and competencies to come in every, and people who can do that, people who want to do it can be found in every demographic of America, no matter which way you slice it by identity, by gender, by ethnic background, by, you know, socioeconomic place, region, it doesn't matter. And that's what it takes to make the whole force go. No professional who does this business believes that it's anything other than that is what it takes to actually succeed. Absolutely. And it, you know, it's important to remember that LGBTQ plus people have been serving our nation in these capacities throughout our nation's history. This is about making sure that they feel safe in doing so. 
And a big part of that is just over 10 years ago, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. What steps has the department taken to help LGBTQ plus individuals live their most authentic lives while working with the department? Speaking as an individual, I wasn't involved with um, the Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal. And I presently don't work on, I work for the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, and I'm his readiness assistant secretary. Um, but the Secretary of Defense has stated that he believes our most important strategic asset in the Department of Defense is our people, the people that actually do the jobs, um, and all the work that um, is required. I think what came after Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it was so focused on the individual service members, those people who served, those people who had to serve in hiding, um, and those people who were put under a form of double jeopardy with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Some commanders um, honored it, others didn't. There were folks who were discharged under uh, contrived circumstances in a lot of the cases, or um, if they were believed to be um, LGBTQ, they might be discharged for, you know, uh, a, a, a a discipline thing other than the don't ask, don't tell provision. Um, but after it was repealed and in, in, the, in the study of the repeal and in the implementation of it, you know, it's not just about the individual. We often say, um, you know, we recruit a service member, but then we retain their family. So many people, you know, um, find partners, get married, um, they have children. Sometimes they bring partners and children with them into service. And it's the, it's the family that's gonna determine and how that family feels supported and how they appreciate the service member's career um, is how we're gonna keep them. And it's the continent. So policies had to be adjusted for all those things. We have people all across America and all across the world. Um, we, not all of those tours um, allow people to take their families with them, but many of them do. And it's how we account for an LGBTQ person serving in uniform, as well as there are complications for civilians when they serve in foreign countries, um, depending upon that host nation's laws. Um, but it's how we account for those, our service members as the center of, for our purposes, for the center of a family and our relationship to that entire family and that those people feel supported. And that, because readiness starts at home for people to do their job, they need to feel not be distracted by the fact that their family uh, life may be complicated by who they are as an American and as a service member so that they can do their job in that way. So I think it's really been an evolution over time to understand what it takes to support an LGBTQ American who's part of an LGBTQ family. It doesn't mean everybody in that family is themselves LGBTQ, their children and all those others that are their dependents, but that what it takes for that family to be supported so that the person that we are actually have in our employment or in their or in uniform service can do what we need them to do, what we've asked them to do and do it to the fullest extent possible in a modern sense, which is understanding it's not just show up and do the thing and good luck to you when you go home. That doesn't work. It doesn't work for Fortune 500 companies. It certainly doesn't work for the Department of Defense either. 
that focus on, you know, the whole person. I definitely think that's a shift we've seen in recent years. And it's really critical because as you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I loved what you said about recruiting the service member, but retaining the family. Um, it's very true that you need to focus on the unit as a whole so that someone can truly be successful. The time of thinking that people leave work and, you know, there's no connection between the personal and professional um, it, it is very much over. And I think that is something that even when when you describe your experience in government, we've seen how that transition has occurred. I'm curious, what does the future of supporting LGBTQ individuals in government, in the military, what does that look like to you, both from your experience and where you think we need to go in the future, as well as from a readiness perspective, uh, what do you think the department needs to do in the future? I think we see the future in large part playing out before us today. Um, even in the past, um, after Don't Ask, Don't Tell, after um, the first, uh, when the, the Obama administration first explicitly opened up uh, uniform service to out transgender people and allowing them to transition while serving, um, it was obvious that, you know, as I mentioned, we have folks serving all across the country and across the world. And um, how your employer, the Department of Defense, the, the, uh, the US government, viewed you and treated you wasn't didn't off sometimes would not extend and be you would not be treated similarly or held in the same regard in whatever um state or county or local area that you found yourself in under their laws your spouse might be treated differently outside of a federal installation your rights as an individual your your personal relationships as married individuals or cohabitants the relationship to your children um, can be different in there and those that you're responsible for. And now in 2022, we see that's being amplified in, in certain uh, state governments. That's just a fact with how uh, bills are being considered and laws are being passed and enacted into law as to um, that can make people feel, bring question as to whether or not they're welcome in the places that they're serving and what that does their complications as a family in those places or as just as individuals conducting their lives outside of their work hours and their immediate workplace because the vast majority of our folks live off of an installation a good number do generally the ju more junior folks but most people live out on the economy as we say in town and so we know that some jurisdictions there folks may not feel welcome they might be able to access healthcare services that they were able to access in some form before those might be becoming uh, under greater uh, stress and availability may be lessened for some folks. And uh, senior leaders in the department have already started talking about that there. And I think that we're living that future today because we have to increasingly understand what it takes as we uh, spoke before, what it takes to support the people who serve the nation within our department. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Um, we are going to get ready to move towards our, our second side of this panel. But before we do, is there any, you know, last minute Pride Month messages that you want to send out to our listeners who are both military and civilian personnel? I hope that everybody who serves knows that even if they themselves are not out, which is a very out at work or out period, it's the most intensely personal decision I think someone faces, it's certainly one that I faced. Um, even if you're in those circumstances, you're not alone. Um, and you don't have to be alone as much 
to the extent that you can reach out and find each other's. We have communities of all sorts, um, virtual. Um, you can commune with folks outside of work, outside of um, off your off your workplace if you're fortunate. Um, but understand that senior leadership will see you and will and wants to support you in that way. And we value everyone as a as a person, as a human being, as an American. And they should, <clears throat> excuse me, they should feel that in their work. Thank you so much, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, the Honorable Sean Skelly. I appreciate so much that you joined us here today and all of the work that you do uh, for our nation. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Want to know the secret to my bright, vibrant smile? It starts with my Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP dental coverage. I have no deductible for in-network services like fillings, x-rays, and root canals, and my routine preventive care is fully covered, including up to three cleanings a year. Plus, having nearly half a million in-network provider access points means I can find trusted care close to home. Plans start as low as $20 a month. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepdental.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network with all three members of the Merit System Protection Board. And, and one question that I wanted to ask you all, you know, in this period where um, finality and personnel actions and decisions has often been many years away for people, um, that has created a sense of, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. And, and we've talked about that here today. Uh, and so I'm just curious, you know, how is the board thinking about how is the board working to restore that trust and communicate the actions that you all um, are taking? And maybe, Ray, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Thank you, Jason. And uh, we do play a critical role as Congress envisioned in which uh, employees who take an oath of, of office to do their jobs, to uh, support and defend the Constitution, uh, the last thing they have to deal with is a, a fear of retaliation, uh, an inability to speak out, to um, to uphold their oath, and also to complete the, the work that they're doing. And if they are chilled in their speech and, and how they do their work because of uh, retaliation, uh, they need to have a place, a forum to go. And, and as Tristan noted earlier, yes, they could go to the Office of Special Counsel, uh, they could go to uh, other forums to um, raise their concerns, but ultimately uh, this administrative process is set up where cases can be adjudicated before an administrative judge and, and, and that case will be heard. And I think in many places and, and, and across the federal government, people need to feel like they can be heard and, and they have a voice. And if we truly are going to lift up to the aims of being uh, a model employer and um, continue to attract the best and brightest to join the federal government, we need to make sure that they feel comfortable and safe in doing their jobs. So uh, certainly uh, the whistleblower protection statutes have uh, gone a long way and have evolved a long way to make sure that uh, there's a place where those cases can be heard 
and again, it, 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 it's, a, it's an absolute privilege to be part of the board, to be uh, a place to hear those cases. Kathy? Oh, thanks. Well, first of all, I want to say the board is back, and we're <laughs> here to do justice, okay? So you have uh, three very passionate believers in the merit systems. And we want to do everything we can to ensure that people feel encouraged to bring forth their concerns to the board, through the board. If you're a whistleblower and you've been holding off reporting something because you feel like there's nowhere to go, well, we're back. Come on, we wanna hear your case. And we want to do what we can to protect whistleblowers in the federal government. The other thing I want to say, and because it's really important, is that the board hasn't ceased functioning over the lack of quorum. The administrative judges have been hearing initial appeals and been adjudicating cases all along. And, you know, I think there's over 4,000 cases that they adjudicated in 2021, and only 11% came up to the PFR level. So the vast majority of folks have been getting their adjudications done and finalized at the initial appeal level. But, you know, that said, it's very important to have a full quorum, I'm sorry, a full complement uh, and a quorum, and uh, we're, we're here to do what we can. Jason, can I pick up one thing there? Yeah, absolutely, Tristan. Kathy said, of course, if you're holding out, making your disclosures, you know, now's the time to do it. We want to hear your case. And I think it's a good time to reiterate, we hope we don't have to hear your case. We hope that when you disclose waste, fraud, and abuse, there's no retaliation. Because that's really the culture change that would be necessary in the government, right? So, you know, that's that's the really key thing. Um a lot of people may not know that two days after the Whistleblower Protection Act was passed, President George H.W. Bush issued an executive order, and it's now been codified as the standards of ethical conduct that says in there, employees shall disclose waste, fraud, abuse, and corruption to appropriate authorities. And it really is a shame that, that people need to be afraid of doing that, because that's really, you know, in one sense, then an obligation that all federal employees have. We know not everybody does it, right? Because it takes a lot of courage to stand up and do that. But um, we we certainly hope that in addition to employees, you know, being able to do what they know is right, that managers will do that as well, because they, people should be able to do that without fear of, am I going to end up with a case before the MSPP? Yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciate you sharing that, Tristan. And, and I think it's one of those, those things that I think Kathy saying that the board is back is so important, you know, when, when there wasn't that, that cop on the beat who could give that final clearance and top cover, certain folks who might be doing things that they shouldn't be doing could have been emboldened. And um, I hear a clear message coming out um, from you all that, that you're looking, um, you know, at these things more broadly and um, you know, is, is, is it, uh, a signal of, of, of a difference in, in direction or priority that the board is bringing to these, or is it trying to aim us toward that culture change um, and, and really living the merit system principles um, at their core uh, within the government? 
Kathy and Ray likely have better thoughts on this than I do, but but I would just say Congress has been trying for a number of years to effectuate this culture change, right? So these laws have been in place for a really long time. And yes, there have been some tweaks here and there along the way, but they're, they've essentially largely just been to ensure that MSPB and the courts and the agencies are just, you know, complying with the spirit of the law that was passed to begin with. So I don't, I don't know that it's anything special we bring. We're just trying to enforce the law that's there. But there's some, there's some pretty strong laws there because we have a really strong public policy interest in rooting out problems in the government. Um, you know, every taxpayer has an interest in doing that. And so that's, that's what we want to protect, whether it falls within MSPB's slice of the system or more broadly, you know, especially as we approach National Whistleblower Appreciation Day, all of us should recognize, you know, whistleblowers uh, for the patriots that they are. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Tristan and Ray. I wanted to get your thoughts on this question of culture. Um, you know, as as a longtime career executive and civil servant, you know, I have this perspective that Congress keeps trying to legislate culture change. And I don't know when they'll figure out that that's just not possible in, unless you invest in leader development and manager development and many things that the board has cited in its years over the years in its studies and reports to the president and Congress. But I'm just curious about your thoughts on that, you know, again, transitioning as a, as a civil servant into this role. Um, and is there any words of wisdom or advice you might have for our, our audience on that front? Jason, I, I, that's a great question. And definitely to the listeners, especially uh, the federal employees and retirees, you know, again, my message to you is thank you for your service. Thank you for your contributions. I thank you for your, your families who've allowed you to um take that calling and, and, and move into public service because it is a very difficult job. And, and at the same time, this culture that you discussed is it is challenging to legislate culture. Uh, we have about 175 or so federal agencies in existence today. And dare I say, each one may have their own culture, <laughs> but we're committed to the mission. And when you look at the Federal Employee Viewpoint, survey up and down the line for over the past couple decades, in fact, you will see employees typically strongly identify with their agency's mission. So that's the good news, right? I think what we sometimes have to deal with, Jason, are the situations in which management has let their employees down. And in some ways, we've tried to legislate better training. We try to identify better supervisors to take on that role. But in, in my years of experience where I do see uh, the, the particular challenges is sometimes around the supervisory ranks where uh, retaliation unnecessarily occurs, uh, perhaps for a myriad of reasons, one being culture within that institution. There are risk factors in the workplace that transcends both public and private sectors that uh, leaders need to be aware of when your employees are in the workplace. But I think more importantly, you know, how are people being selected to become a supervisor? Do they have the skills, the competencies, and dare I say courage to do the right thing? And I think that's in uh, where we uh, fall down and in, in, in uh, Congress's infinite wisdom, they try to address those issues through legislation. But by the time you take that piece of legislation and put it in practice in small or large agency, geographically, distance from one another, that's where we have a tendency of some of those norms 
falling down. And many times it's around that first and second line supervisor. So that's my bias. <laughs> and, and, and some of the things that I picked up over my career, and those are the things I think we should also continue to uh, work on. No, thanks for sharing that perspective, Rain. I think it's a super critical one because at the end of the day, policy can only carry you so far, but the decisions that people make um, are, are going to fill in the rest of the gaps. Um, and um, and we've seen how that has played out over time. Uh, we've got just a minute or two left here. And uh, Kathy, I wanted to, to give you um, the last word here on, on whether, you know, you... Uh, have a message for federal employees, um, the, the community writ large, or for folks specifically on National Whistleblower Appreciation Day at the end of the month. Um, final word before I sign us out. Kathy. Thank you, Jason. And, and again, thank you for having us on the program. Uh, I want to echo what my colleagues have said. Thank you to federal employees for their service. Thank you for your courage in bringing forth allegations of fraud, waste, and abuse, and other violations of the merit system principles. Um, you make government better, and we're so grateful for you. Awesome. Well, um, I am so appreciative to each of the three of our guests, all three uh, members of the Merit Systems Protection Board for joining us today. Uh, Kathy Harris, Ray Lamone, Tristan Levitt, uh, thank you for your work. We're glad to have you on the beat at the MSPB, uh, working to ensure that our merit system is real, is vital, and is vibrant, uh, and working to, to uh, help restore trust in government in your own way. Ready to picture the right vision coverage? Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision has two plans designed to fit any lifestyle. All members get fully covered in-network vision care exams and a frame allowance, plus access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. And the best part? Plans start as low as $12 a month. With Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision, you get no illusions, just great coverage. It's exactly how you pictured it, right? See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering the last segment of our show. Let's dive right in. So Hispanic Heritage Month is just one month out of the year, but the things we've talked about in the show, the importance of uplifting these identities, of sharing this rich and diverse history, it really needs to happen all year long. And so I want to talk to each of you about how we keep the conversation going. And one of the key ways that I know the National Museum of the American Latino is doing that is through their um, permanent gallery that that's going on right now in the Museum of American History and some of the other year-round events that are going on. Jorge, can you tell us a little bit more about that? We had an amazing opportunity over the past few years to start developing a gallery at the National Museum of American History. And you know, it's great uh, foresight with, with my predecessors thinking, you know, this museum might not happen for a while. What do we do? How do we start establishing that presence? So about seven years ago, they started fundraising for what became the Molina Family Latino Gallery. And the Molina family, uh, their, their kids, uh, the five uh, children of Dr. Molina, each contributed to, to, towards this founding gift to open this gallery. Uh, it's finished. It opened in June with the first exhibit that it opened June 18th. was called Presente. It's called Presente. And it's a Latino history of the United, in the United States. And it's really a foundational work, like, you know, 101. What does it mean to be Latino in the United States and explores different topics and themes 
uh, and it's 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 amazing uh, the reaction and the response we've gotten already. Uh, I, I love telling the story. You know, we opened with a big private VIP party on a Thursday night, but the more important one to me was a Saturday when we opened to the public because the gallery was full. We had thousands of people going through each day for weeks, and and I started walking around talking to everyone. And, and when you speak to them, ninety percent of them were Latino. They went there to see their gallery, see their their stories being told. And that was so special. Uh, it was a pilgrimage. It's the same as the African-American Museum is. People, It's a destination museum. They're, they're coming here to see this gallery, which is only 4,500 square feet. It's a nice size. But imagine when we have over 100,000 square feet of programming space for exhibits. It's going to be an amazing experience. And I think people are really looking forward to that. I like telling everybody, um, we continue the story all year round. Like I said before, Hispanic Heritage Month, we whatever you might call it, it's really about how do we communicate that every day of the year. Um, and not only for us today, it's really for our future generations. It's for my kids, my grandkids and yours. So they, when they come uh, to DC, when they come to a national museum, we can ensure that those stories will be there. So when they face those pressures of assimilation and stereotypes and struggles and things they're thinking about, they can see how we got to where we are today. And that's gonna make quite a difference. Absolutely. And it's so great to hear that this is going on, that there is a space in the Museum of American History to celebrate these stories. And, and I can't wait to check it out. I definitely have to make my way there um, very soon. And the council is also hosting events throughout the year there, through these virtual forums where you bring people together to have these necessary conversations about elevating the Hispanic identity within the federal workforce. Javier, can you tell me a little bit more about these forums and how you how you utilize them as a space to keep the conversation going. Yeah, I appreciate that, Natalia. And and I think it's 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 twofold, right? It's number one is you know using these forums to educate new and collateral duty special emphasis program managers, whether they're Hispanic specifically or they work on veterans issues, uh, African American issues, or other uh, special emphasis programs. And then the second thing is is to develop those networks that we discussed before and, and partner with other organizations and other individuals to make sure that we're all inclusive when it comes to uh, having allies and also champions of the Hispanic community. Um, you know, this isn't, you know, September 15th, to October 15th issue. And then we forget about it until the following year. We want to make sure that we're using these training opportunities, these networking opportunities to really enhance our participation uh, within the council, but also to uh, expand our networks. One of the things that that Glow did as the chair, she uh, proposed, and, and it actually just passed, a change in our organizational structure to include subcommittees uh, that are standing committees. You know, whether it's education or you know partnerships, uh, other you know communications. We really want to hit the gas to make sure that we have a 12-month program that's almost repetitive year after year based on the need of the organization so that we could not only grow our membership, but make sure we're providing um, the necessary tools so that the community could help us move our Hispanic employment program uh, management uh, issues forward throughout the federal government. 
that's great. You know, we often on this show talk about the importance of mentorship, the value of having a strong network. And these forums really provide an opportunity for people who may feel very siloed or focused on just their individual position to expand that network so that we can really see that representation in the leading levels of government. Um, as you mentioned in the last segment, it's very unfortunate that when you get to the SDS level, the diversity really drops off. And having that mentorship, that network to be able to connect with is so critical for ensuring that people can move up the pipeline um, and, and are not stagnant in their position. So really kudos to you guys on creating that type of environment. The museum is also working on, um, you know, bringing in employees in order to really, you know, it's very important that the museum has the staff to be able to share this story. And can you tell me about some of the internships and fellowships that you are offering at the National Museum of the American Latino to bring in students in government service through the museum? Sure. Well, you know, the museum cultivates uh, future museum workers and leaders through its Latino uh, Museum Studies program and a community conscious leaders, uh, a younger audience through the Young Ambassadors program. Uh, we've been actively funded and advocated for curatorial positions in Smithsonian for years, and it's made quite a difference in collections, exhibitions, and research. Um, for instance, the Young Ambassadors program, it's a nationally recognized program, and it's for graduating high school seniors um, you know, fosters that next generation of community conscious Latino leaders in the arts, sciences, humanities. You know, they come here for, for Washington week uh, during the summer and then they, they go back and they, and they, and they, and they serve at internships in different communities across the United States. Um, so you have all these different partners throughout the U.S. We have with science museums, art museums, um, different cultural organizations in the U.S. and Puerto Rico to prepare them for, for that work and, and, and for majoring in, in a certain area of study. So that's really important. Then the next one we do is a Latino Museum Studies Program. And that's, you know, again, to increase that representation uh, in the community. Um, and it's so important. That internship program, this, you know, this is with undergrads, undergraduate students, and it focuses in areas of conservation, museum education, digital culture, exhibition design. Again, we're cultivating those future museum workers, that staff that we need at, at, at every level. Uh, so those those two programs are so key for us. Absolutely. And it's so critical to get that next generation to really recognize the value of public service and the value of storytelling, uh, of sharing the, the history of these people with the next generation, which is, you know, really at the heart of what so much of the museum does. Now, you guys also, I noticed um, under your staff resources page, have a working group dedicated um, to promoting the recruitment and retention of Latino and Latina staff within the institution. Can you tell me about that and some of the other staff resources that you offer? Sure. Yes, we have a Latino initiatives pool and that that's uh, you know, grant money that we, we direct uh, towards doing that. So for instance, 25 years ago, there was no uh, curator of Latino art at the portrait gallery. There was no uh, curator in American history that had a focus on Latino history. Uh, so now, you know, we have you know, three or four curators at American History. We have a, a Latino curator of American art at, at the Portrait Gallery. We have someone um, at the Air and Space Museum. We have all these different places where we, you know, we, we have staff, we have uh, team members that are well-versed in, in, in our culture and in, in our history to make sure that those uh, stories 
are being integrated throughout their work. It's not just a one one off exhibit that's done every five years. It's something that's done continuously every day in all their work. So for instance, if you go to the National Museum of American History today, there's an exhibit called Play Ball on Latinos in baseball. And that's been up for the past few years and that's traveling the nation as, as an exhibit now. And that was created by American History, thanks in part to the funding from the Latino Initiatives Pool. So that's instrumental going forward. Well, and it really shows how far we have come since the 1994 report on willful neglect. It really, to hear that these positions exist, these funds exist, um, I really, we started the show with the conversation, but I can't emphasize enough that it's not, we were at a place of willful neglect and now 30 years later, we're in a place where we almost have a, a full museum. It is so much that had to be done over the last 30, almost 40 years to create the place that we are at now. And I want to discuss um, as we get to the end of this show, Javier, can you just tell me very, I want a frank uh, conversation about what are the barriers that still exist and persist that it kind of stifle the advancement of this community in the federal government and how the council is really working to counter those so that the next 30 years, the next 40 years look even brighter than the last. Yeah, so so there's two things. Uh, I think one of the things that I mentioned is, you know, our, our membership needs to grow, although we have over a thousand members. Uh, we have approximately 50 folks that come on a regular basis to, to our monthly meetings. We want to make sure we expand that. Um, membership in the council is free, absolutely free. What's free in this day and age, right? So, you know, if somebody goes to nationalcouncilhepm.org, they could sign up uh, for free membership. The other thing I, I wanted to talk about, which I mentioned during a, a panel last week, is accent bias. I think that is something that we really don't talk about enough um, because there, you know, there's a there's a traditional bias or unconscious bias in the interview process to begin with. But I think accent bias is something that we really need to focus on. You know, I'll mention my dad again, and, and clearly you could see that you know how proud I am of, of my father. He had an accent when he came to this country, right? He spoke English his entire life, you know, with an accent, but his vocabulary was bar none. I always said he probably had a better vocabulary than I did. Um, he could recite Hamlet like nobody's business. Um, but because of that accent, people reacted to him in a different way. And I think that is part of the problem that we have or a barrier that we need to eliminate as part of that unconscious or even conscious bias that some hiring managers have. Um, so if I had to pick one area right now today, the accent bias is something that really bothers me. And I think we need to uh, move past that and move beyond that. And it's great to hear that you guys are hosting these forums, that you're working to expand your membership so that people can become more familiar with these issues. And as you mentioned, it's not just Hispanic or Latino Americans that need to join these forums, but it is a larger population so that they can hear and understand these issues and make progress on them. This has been a really incredible program. I very much appreciate the opportunity to highlight the value of Hispanic heritage, not just this month, but all year round. I'm going to encourage everyone to check out latino.si.edu. That is the homepage for the National Museum of the American Latino, where they can learn more about the incredible work going on at this museum, as well as National Council 
hepm.org where they can learn more about the Hispanic Employment Program Managers, the National Council. Um, and then I want to thank everyone here for joining me today. Jorge, founding director and CEO of the National Museum of the American Latino. Um, Javier, the vice chair of the National Council of Hispanic Employment Program Managers. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you guys for listening to some of our favorite shows of this year. Don't forget to listen to the full shows on your favorite podcasting platform and stay tuned for some great new episodes next year, every other Friday on Federal News Network, 1500 AM or your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks and have a great New Year's.